You're listening to the Sunday Messages podcast brought to you by Cypress Creek Church. So good to be with you guys this morning. As Taylor said, I am so grateful for the opportunity to close out the year with y'all this morning. And I really kind of want to double click on what he was saying in terms of the first Monday worship and prayer. That is a wonderful opportunity that we have to worship in the new year. I know when I was in college, I was a part of a Bible study with crew for several years, and they would always do their winter retreat, and they would uh, do it over New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, and so they would literally worship in the new year at midnight. I don't think that's something Joel and Rhonda want to do this evening, but it is a wonderful opportunity that we have to reorient and focus on what really matters as we enter into the new year together. The new year is always a time of change. The holiday season inevitably throws off our routines, and depending on who we are and what life season we're in, that change can create all sorts of mixed emotions in us. For example, I am somebody who is naturally resistant to change probably a bit of a control freak. I like stability. I like routine. I like the predictability that that leads to in my life. When I was a freshman in high school, my family moved from Columbus, Ohio to Austin, Texas. Um, As a 15-year-old kid, I'd lived in the same house I'd lived in since I started kindergarten. I had the same friends since when I started going to school. I had an established reputation. I had an established community. My extended family all lived within a very compact area. And then all of a sudden I said goodbye one day in June and drove 20 hours south and ended up in Austin. And one day, actually the very next day, I started training with my new high school at this summer workout program that I was told that I had to go to, which entailed running, it felt like an endless number of sprints on a turf field that felt like it was hotter than the face of the sun. And I just remember feeling like moving to Texas had to be some sort of divine punishment, that I had done something wrong and I was being punished for what I had done. I laugh because my family's here this morning, and for a long time, my mom was like, I think we ruined his life. (laughs) Like, I think we completely ruined his life. Now, 15 years later, I'm still here. So I don't know if that's because I'm resistant to change, or maybe it's because we had 65 and sunny for the last week over Christmas, and thank the Lord I wasn't in Columbus, Ohio, where it was going to be 38 and gray for five days in a row. But for others of us, We like change. You're not like me who likes predictability and routine, but you like spontaneity. You like the the newness of it. And change represents an opportunity for growth. It represents an opportunity for something new. When I moved to Texas, one of my first friends was this guy named Danny. My family started going to a church, and Danny was an intern at the church. He was a freshman at AM, and for Danny, change was something that was really exciting. Going off to AM was the opportunity for him to go through a big rebrand. Nobody knew who he was, which meant that he could be whoever he wanted to be. So he goes off to AM, and he decided, I'm no longer Danny, I am Dan told you, big rebrand. But Dan was an adult name for him. And it was this opportunity for him to become the person that he maybe always wanted to be, but because everybody knew him as Danny, 
He couldn't be that person. There were all of these associations with that name. And so he became Dan, because then he could grow into whoever he felt like he wanted to be. Now, you might naturally identify yourself as someone like me, where change is disruptive in a negative sense, where it throws off your routine, it creates a level of unknown that causes fear inside of you. Or you might be like Danny, where you really enjoy change, where you enjoy the possibility or the opportunity to do something new and different, and that is something that is exciting to you. More than likely, you have a complex relationship with change. Some change is good. Other change creates an inordinate amount of fear inside of you. And here in the new year, we are often confronted with a season that is defined by change. If you're anything like me, you ate poorly throughout the holiday season. And so going into the new year, you want to get healthy. And so you change your eating habits. You decide that you're going to start going to the gym for the first time in a while. Or you decide that you want to learn something new in the coming year. So you had your family buy you that guitar over Christmas, or you're committing to a reading list in the coming year. Maybe you want to grow in your relationship with your spouse, and so you commit to going and getting help, developing the tools to grow in intimacy in your marriage. Maybe you want to grow closer to God, and so you inevitably start that Bible in a year plan. We develop these New Year's resolutions about the way that we want to live differently in the coming year. And these things aren't bad. There's nothing wrong with them. We should take steps to enter into our relationships as the healthiest version of ourselves that we can possibly be. In really important ways, our desire to change and to grow imitates the creativity of the Creator God. You see, God is a God of change. Now, to be clear, His character does not change, but God is active and he is intimately involved in his creation. He is always creating and recreating and redeeming and reconciling things in this world. And so our creative activity, our change, our growth is to imitate the creativity of God. And this sometimes gets lost as we contemplate our New Year's resolutions. If you guys are anything like me, I tend to focus on habit formation and self-discipline. What can I do to change myself? What can I do to make myself better in the coming year? But what happens when it's all about uh, self-discipline and habit formation is we tend to edge God out of those resolutions. That it becomes about what I can do for myself. And so what I would like to do this morning is look at God and look at his creative activity as it's demonstrated throughout the biblical narrative and allow that to refocus and reorient how we begin to think about this season of change in our lives. This morning is an opportunity for us to invite God into our formation as we begin the new year. And what we're going to be doing is looking at the greater storyline of the Bible as this framing narrative for how we think about change. For many people, including myself, for a very, very long time, the idea of thinking about the greater storyline of the Bible was something that was incredibly intimidating and scary to me. Now, you might even be sitting in your seat and saying, what greater storyline? 
All of these books seem like really disconnected narratives that have nothing to do with one another. Well, something that was immensely helpful for me was when someone suggested to me that we look at the biblical narrative and we break it down like the acts of a play. Now, disclaimer here, I am no theater expert. I love TV and movie and books, but I know nothing about theater. If you guys need to know anything about theater, Jacob Bruner in the back has a theater degree. He'll correct anything that I say that's incorrect, or you can find a college student who is currently working on a theater degree. But what we see when we view the Bible through this lens is the possibility of seeing four acts in the narrative. The first act is creation. We read in Genesis 1 that God speaks and creation responds. God separates light from dark. He creates the seas and the land. He creates the vegetation. He creates the sun, the moon, the stars. He creates the fish and the birds. He creates the living creature. Six times God declares that what he has created is good. Then in Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28, it's the most beautiful poem in the Bible. God creates human beings, male and female. He creates them in his image, and he declares it very good. Very good. Now, there's this tendency for Christians to sometimes have a negative view of the material world. There's this notion, which somehow entered the Christian imagination, that the world is irredeemably evil, and the only hope of salvation is to escape in this, into this immaterial spiritual world. This developed into the idea that while we are on earth, we should spend our time on spiritual tasks rather than material ones. But there's simply no support for this kind of thinking in the book of Genesis. There's no divorce between the spiritual and the material in God's good creation. God's call for human beings is inextricably rooted and linked to his good material creation. We are called by God to be his divine representatives on earth, bringing about the fruitfulness of all creation. In other words, God included us in his ongoing creative act in the world since the very beginning. We are to be agents of change that partner with what God is doing in the world, and that is part of his created design, the original design. And this gives us the freedom to celebrate the goodness of creation. And goodness carries with it a lot of meanings. It's not just that God likes his creation, but that creation is beautiful in God's eyes. Creation is both for God's and humans' delight. The creation is excellent. The creation is a gift from God, and we should see it as such. Now, the second act is the fall. In Genesis 2, we read about God planting a garden in Eden. And Adam and Eve are placed in this garden. They are told that they can eat of the fruit of all of the trees except for this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam and Eve are deceived by the snake, and they're disobedient, and they eat from that tree. And as a result, sin enters the world. Adam and Eve's choice represents this moment of decreation. It's the undoing of God's good creative work through human choice, human agency. 
And at this point, separation exists between us and God. And what the scene in Genesis 3 demonstrates for us is that sin divides, that sin corrupts, that sin perverts creation in all sorts of ways. You see, sin is not just between me and God, but sin spreads throughout all creation. It not only uh, separates you from God, but it separates you from your neighbor, it separates you from your spouse, it separates you from creation, and it even separates you from yourself. Suffering and sadness and war are the result of sin's effects on God's good earth, and they pervert God's design for the totality of creation. We can go nowhere that is untouched by sin. Sin is deeper and more pervasive in creation than we could ever imagine. It's a decreating force in the world. The theologian Bryant Myers states that this should save us from any utopian beliefs in the ability of governments, of economic systems, of churches, businesses, or even our own efforts to create a perfect shalom that is a Hebrew word that means peace. This perfect shalom-filled world. And what Myers does here is he names for us the reality that we cannot fix the effects of sin. We are incapable of fixing the effects of sin, which ultimately points us to the need for a savior. And that's all that Act 3 is about. Redemption. This is the story of Jesus. In John chapter 1, we're told that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And I love the way that Eugene Peterson articulates it when he says that the word became flesh and he moved into the neighborhood. He moved into the neighborhood. In the birth of Jesus, we see the God of the universe break into time and space and become incarnate. That's what the word means is to take on flesh. And this is the climax scene that we celebrated just a week ago at Christmas. And we reach the pinnacle of this scene in the crucifixion. You see, Jesus didn't come to bring about redemption by grabbing power and leading Israel to freedom through political and military rule. Instead, he did it through his death on a cross. Jesus brings about redemption for us through the giving up of his life. He's resurrected three days later, appears to many, and then ascends into heaven. And the death of Jesus on the cross brings about the possibility of redemption for all creation. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1 that in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And this signals a significant change for all of creation. You see, the cross didn't just simply pay for sin, but it restored us to the creational flourishing that we read about in Genesis 1 and 2. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that the cross does have personal implications. It says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new Creation, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself 
and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The cross of Christ changes our identity. The old nature has passed away through the death of Jesus, and we are raised to walk in newness of life, to borrow Paul's language from Romans chapter 6. We are a new creation, but it's critically important that we realize that the cross is doing quite a bit more than the saving of souls and the changing of hearts. To go back to Colossians chapter 1, Paul tells us that the cross is the initiation of the restoration of all of life. And this reorients our understanding of Christ's work on the cross. Jesus' atoning work on the cross applies to all of creation. The cross restores all of life. To quote Bryant Myers again, he says, the incarnation is the best evidence we have for how seriously God takes the material world. It smashes any argument that God is only concerned for the spiritual realm and that the material world is somehow evil or unworthy of the church's attention. So at this point, we turn our attention to the fourth act, which gives us hints about how the play is supposed to end. And really, act four is the resolution. In the first three acts, we're looking at the past up to the present, how God intended creation to flourish, how it became broken by sin, and how it is in the process of being redeemed. The fourth act is the consummation of all things. In Revelation 21, Jesus is seated on the throne and he says, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, you can write this down for this is trustworthy and true. In the end, Jesus promises that we will have a new heaven and a new earth. The tears will be dried. Isaiah tells us that swords and spears will be turned into pruning hooks and plowshares. The key here is to understand that this creative act is not a destruction, but a restoration. A restoration. The end times are not a time of total destruction where everything is burned up. That's not what we see in the Bible. Instead, what we find is a restoration. God will take our earth and the terrible things that we have done with our earth and our technology and our culture, and he's not going to destroy them, but he's going to transform them into something that is productive and redemptive. Jesus's words in John chapter three demonstrate that God does not have disdain for this creation, but that he loves it and he desires to redeem it. So let's look at this familiar passage for a second. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And in verse 17, for God did not condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The cross of Christ is cosmic in its scope. And this storyline is really incredible when we look at it. It's truly the greatest story ever told because in it we experience the story of a sovereign creator God who is not distant, who did not create the world and step back and allow us to tear it to pieces. Rather, it tells the story of a God who is intimately and actively involved in his creation. 
constantly creating and recreating and redeeming and reconciling all things back to himself. The story is not meant to be something that we just talk about. It's not meant to be something that we simply obey, but it's meant to be something that we live and that we embody. Let me say that again. The gospel is not something that we talk about or obey. It is something we embody in our lives, in our parenting, in our work, in our politics, in our business. This story is meant to be lived. It is meant to change and transform every aspect of our lives. Story is not some private, personal, devotional story. Instead, it is a story that is public in its implications. And that's what's so important about this fourth act. We as the church live as a part of this fourth act, being offered a part in the divine drama where we get to participate by adding our own spirit-empowered performance in the final act. We are given the opportunity to be a part of this coming kingdom today. And the church is meant to be a foretaste of that coming kingdom. Our actions and our words point to a new way to be human. In the businesses that we run, in the artistic creations that we produce, in the ways that we care for patients and students, in the ways that we live, we are participating with God in the restoration of all And in those contexts, we are pointing to a coming kingdom. And nothing that we do will ever be a full picture of that coming kingdom, but the way that we live is a signpost of a kingdom that is to come. That when people interact with us, when they encounter the things that we do and the things that we make, they should be left with the sense that there is something more that we are made for that is not that is not satisfied here in the present moment. And through their interaction with us, they get a foretaste of this new community, this new flourishing that is offered in Christ Jesus. We, our work, our behavior is meant to be a foretaste of that coming kingdom. And this time of year, we spend a lot of time talking about those New Year's resolutions how we want to change our habits in the coming year. We talk about personal change. And what I would like to do is challenge us to reframe our thinking about those resolutions this coming year. Jose asked us a really important question last week. He asked us, how can I glorify God in 2024? This is the last thing he asked us last Sunday morning. How can I glorify God in 2024? Well, we glorify God through our participation in his work in the world. And so I would like to build off of Jose's question, make it a little bit more pointed this morning. What would it look like for me to participate with God in what he is doing in the world? What would it look like for me to participate with God in what he is doing in the world? And so when you go to lunch after church, or you wake up tomorrow morning and you're sharing coffee and breakfast with your family, this is your homework to simply begin to talk about this question, to explore how God might want to use you to bring about his kingdom here and now. What would it look like for you in your context 
to participate with what God is doing in the world? This is a broad question, and I recognize that. And I also recognize that it might feel like your answer to that question should solve some big picture question like world hunger or clean drinking water, but that is not my intention. My intention is actually to make this incredibly personal, to individualize this. The reality is God is at work in your family. He's at work in your workplace. He's at work in your schools, all throughout this community. And his desire is to use us as a vessel for his redemptive purposes in those contexts. In ways small and large through our daily words and action, God desires to use us to bring about his kingdom here today. In the Reformation in the 1500s, one of the really important theological developments was this concept called the priesthood of all believers. Basically, a whole bunch of old dead guys, you don't even need to know their name, began to read the scriptures for the very first time. And in their reading of the scriptures, they began to recognize that something didn't compute when they looked at the priesthood in the church. They came to realize that the work of ministry was not meant to be something that was exclusively reserved for those who were in full-time vocational ministry. When they read the scriptures, what they saw was that each person is indwelled with and empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the work of ministry, whether they were teachers or shopkeepers or farmers or any other sorts of job. And this is a really important idea for us because it means that all vocations— Parents, doctors, lawyers, baristas, professors, teachers, all vocations are sacred. All vocations are sacred, and this has a profound implication for each and every one of us. It means that you are all pastors and ministers. It means that each and every one of you is a pastor and a minister in your own context. Ministry is not something that is reserved for some special class of human beings who are uniquely called by God. Rather, each of us individually is called to participate in God's mission in the world, regardless of our context, through the empowerment of his spirit at work within us. And what this does is it changes our understanding of the church. It moves us from thinking about the church as an institution, this place that we come to on Sunday mornings and we volunteer in its programs and its activities. And we begin to think of the church rather now as an organism. And the church as an organism is the church scattered. It is the people of God, the movement of the spirit and the body of Christ out in the world, not cloistered away within the four walls of the church. Put another way, the church as an organism is the church sent out into the world to participate in the mission of God in particular contexts such as doctor's offices and courtrooms and classrooms and in homes and neighborhoods and even the corporate office. Ministry does not primarily happen within the four walls of the church. Since the very beginning, this church has believed that ministry primarily happens out there in the community, in your homes, in your neighborhoods, in your schools, in this city. And this is a place that you come to get equipped and empowered and encouraged, and then you are sent out on mission to go do the work of ministry in your unique contexts. This new year, instead of simply focusing on personal change, 
May we instead focus on how God wants to use us to bring about his redemptive purposes here on earth. The different roles that you occupy in your life as students, as parents, as spouses, as kids, as friends, employees, employers, are opportunities for you to partner with God in his work in the world. Through our words and our actions this new year, we point to the coming kingdom and may we invite others to experience the flourishing that only happens in Christ Jesus. This is how we glorify God in the new year. Will you pray with me? Lord, the kingdom is not only beyond our efforts. It's even beyond our vision. God, what we accomplish in our lifetime is only a tiny fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is your work. Lord, we recognize that nothing that we do is complete, which is a way of saying that your kingdom always lies beyond us. No statement says all that could be said. No prayer fully expresses our faith. No visit brings about wholeness. No program simply accomplishes your mission for this church. Lord, no set of goals and objectives includes everything. Lord, we recognize that we simply plant the seeds that will one day grow. We water seeds that have already been planted, knowing that they hold future promise. Lord, we lay foundations that need further development. God, we cannot do everything. Lord, I thank you that there is a sense of liberation in realizing that. God, this enables us to do something and to do it very well. It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning, a step along the way. Lord, and it's an opportunity for your grace to enter in and do the rest. God, we may never see the end results, but that's the difference between you as the master builder and us as the worker. Lord, we are workers, we're not master builders. We are ministers, we're not messiahs. We are prophets of a future that is not our own. And Jesus, we thank you for that. We pray this all in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Messages podcast. You can dive deeper into the messages weekly by subscribing to the Conversations podcast, where we dig into the previous Sunday's message, unpacking how we can apply it further in our daily lives. See you again next week.